Hi there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 466 of the Duke Basketball Report. We're here to talk about Iowa. Blue Devils faced off against the Iowa Hawkeyes last night. It was arguably Duke's best game of the season. I think a lot of people would say that's probably the case. We're here to chat about it a little bit. Also, have you uh, help you look ahead to the game coming up this weekend against Maryland Eastern Shore. That will not be one of our extensive previews. I can already tease you that. <laughs> In any event, I'm your host this week or today, whatever the heck, for this episode. My name is Jason Evans, because after 464 of these, you probably have no idea who I am. Joining me is Donald Wine in Washington, D.C. Donald, how you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, Jason, I know last night was a late affair for all of us, but take note, that was the last game that will start after 7 p.m. for Duke in the regular season this season. So, yay for that. Yeah. For those of us who have to go to work early in the morning, this is a this is a w- wonderful blessing. Uh, that uh, that was Donald Wine. Sam Klein usually joins us. Here's the deal with Sam. We were going to start recording this podcast about a half hour ago, and Sam said, oh, my God, guys, I can't make it. I've got a last-minute work meeting that has come up. So we said, no problem, man. We'll wait for you a little bit. How long will it be? He goes, oh, you know, like 5, 10, maybe 20 minutes. No sweat. That was uh, 35 minutes ago. And Sam finally said, I'm still in my work meeting. I don't know when I'm going to get off of it. So Donald and I are starting without Sam. At any moment, it is possible that Sam will join us. He will flow right into this thing. It'll be like he was never missing. But we're going to begin without him. So, Donald, we will begin the way we always do with the headlines. What is your headline from Duke against Iowa? So mine is Duke sends Hawkeyes to a B&B that's blocks and boards and victory at MSG. I like that. Your headline, I will already tell you, is better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) My headline is Mashing Murray. Blue Devil D, too much for Hawkeye All-American because I thought our defense and the way we held Chris Murray in check was the story of this game more so than anything else. Sam isn't here to give us a headline. And I'm going to be honest. Those of you out there, we got got emails again. People wrote to us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. No offense, people. They're just... Am I wrong, Donald? There, there wasn't a headline that, like I, I said. That's the one we got to. They're just. I, I read them. They were okay, but I, I think we can move on. I just didn't. I hear will any say of that we one. we got yeah. a lot of people giving their observations for the game, which yeah, I a lot was of analysis, cool. which is nice. A yeah, lot of analysis. Yeah. yeah, just not a lot of headlines this week. Right. So, but in any event, people out there, if you want, feel free to email email us at dbrpodcast@gmail.com with your headline from the game and your favorite play. Because we will be doing that as well later on. But first, we got to get to the good. Donald, take me through it. What did you think was the best thing that you saw from the Blue Devils in this victory over Iowa? By the way, a victory where Duke won the game 74-62. to 62. Look, it's the defense. I mean, the defense has been pacing our, pacing our, our whole team all year. And last night might have been, in a way, the best defensive performance. Again, Jason, you kind of alluded to it in your headline. The fact that we entered this game... And a lot of people were saying, hey, Chris Murray is going to be the guy to, to focus in on 21 and 10 averaging uh, this season. He ended with eight points and seven rebounds, which seven rebounds. Yeah, that's that's decent. But when you're averaging 21 points and 10 rebounds, that is a very, very low output. Hey, hey let me just so people are aware of it, because <laughs> you need to know what Chris Murray has been doing in other games. You mentioned his averages, but like literally just a few days ago against Georgia Tech, dude went for 31 and 20. I want to repeat that. 
31 points and 20 rebounds against Georgia Tech. He shot, it was 11 of 18 from the floor. This is a guy who, they played Seton Hall earlier this year, another good team. He went for 29 and 11 against Seton Hall. This dude puts up 20, 25, 30 plus points literally every game. He's almost always grabbing double digit rebounds. But like you said, against Duke, eight and seven. And he, by the worth noting, he only attempted nine shots in like, you know, their, other than games where it was a blowout and he barely played, you know, because they rested him. He usually is shooting like, 14, 17, 18 shots in a game, 20 shots even against Seton Hall. He took 20 against Georgia Tech. He took 18 against TCU and Clemson. He's taken like 14, 17 shots. He only got off nine shots against Duke. And I think our defense, especially Mark Mitchell and Derek Whitehead, were the two guys who were doing most of the work on him. They were outstanding. Absolutely, especially Mark Mitchell, because Mark Mitchell started the game. Derek Whitehead, when he came in, we'll talk a little bit about him in a little bit. Uh, just from both ends of the floor. But I, I think when it comes to Mark Mitchell, he embraced this challenge. Uh, I, I think he talked with uh, Andy Katz after the game. He said it was a challenge and he's a good player. And I was tasked with this and I wanted to make sure I did this at the garden, right? Like the being at the Mecca of, of basketball, it's always easy to get lost in the lights. And again, once again, these guys did not get lost in the lights. And I really, really like that. But Jason, the one thing about that game plan is that they basically told Iowa, the rest of the team, come on, beat us. I dare you, right? And they didn't. These guys shot 40% from the, under 40% from the floor in the game. The, I mean, block party. They had seven blocks on the game. Ryan Young led with three. You also had Derek Lively with a couple. Guys were active rebounding. They out-rebounded them by 10. Like These guys... Again, the blocks and boards came to play, but also it, I mean, it's not even they were forcing turnovers either. It was just good, physical, old-fashioned defense that won this basketball game. And it went, again, once again, even if Chris Murray wasn't the guy, everyone else on Duke's defense did their job too because there was no, there, there was no other unsung heroes that stepped up in Iowa's absence. Everyone was missing shots. And a lot of the times, especially when Duke went on some of their runs, it was one and gone. They they got one shot off. They got the rebound, and Duke was going the other way. It, it was a very – I mean, I can't say enough about how great this defense looked, how solid it looked for, I would say, 90% of the game. This defense really showed up to play. Again, they embraced all of their roles. Everyone worked together, and everyone contributed on the defensive end. Uh, Iowa was held about 25 points less than their season average. When we did the preview of this game, we talked about the fact that Iowa is a team that plays fast and is a team that is like literally one of the best offensive teams in the country. Duke holds them to 62 points. Easily their lowest point output of the year. And and, and Jason that and Jason they were really at yeah. like 50 with about a minute and a half left. They they hit exactly. 10 points in the last like minute and a half. So really if you think about it, they were really at like and they held this team to just uh, under 50 points or just over 50 points in a basketball game. Incredible. Yeah, it, it was it was truly remarkable. And teams hit their peaks at different times. I'm very aware of that. And with a young team, it's always going to take longer to get there. But it's just so easy to see how this team's going to get exponentially better, you know, as Lively and Whitehead get more integrated and, and get more of that rust off. Um I just love to see the fact that the defense is playing so well, clicking this well early on. 
usually defense comes later. Usually guys, you know, they bring offense with them and defense comes later. And there is a distinct possibility. In fact, I will almost be surprised if by the time we hit, you know, late January, early February, this isn't one of the five best defensive teams in the country. It it actually may already be, but this truly has the makings of, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't looked back over the years to see how far back we'd have to go, but I won't be at all surprised if this ends up being, you know, a historically great Duke defensive team, you know, uh, you know, one of the top two, three, four, five defensive teams of the past 20 plus years. One, one quick note, uh, also in the defense, we mentioned on the last episode when we were previewing this game uh, and talking about it, what Duke had done over the last week, we said, hey, when it comes to Derek Lively, we want to see him go f- go for more blocks, but also try to get the rebound of those blocks. He did that twice last night. He had two blocks last night. And I'm pretty sure on both of his blocks, he got the rebound and went. I think he also grabbed the rebound off of a Ryan Young block. So again, guys were all over the place in tipping, you know, getting the ball in a position where they could go the other way and make plays on the other end. And if you think about it, Jason, there's a lot of times where you know, a block shot on one end leading to a three point or a lay in and a foul on the other end. That's just a demoralizing blow for your opposition. And Duke was able to do that over and over and over again last night. And again, I think, you know, in a lot of years you have offense that sparks your defense last night. And so far this year, our defense has sparked our offense. And I think that's great. Yeah. So let's get, by the way, you mentioned the rebounding. I did, I did want to mention very quickly um, th- this is the ninth time in 11 games this season that Duke has had a rebounding advantage. The seventh time in 11 games, we've had a double digit advantage on rebounding and Ryan Young com- continues to be an absolute rebounding phenom. He pulled down double digit rebounds again. When you think about like the number of minutes he's playing, the number of rebounds he's grabbing is unbelievable, but I wanted to get to some individual players. I- I- I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead. Gonna, I know who you're talking about privilege, man. I'm talking about Jeremy Roach and Mark Mitchell. So Jeremy Roach matches his career high with 22 points. He was three of six from three. Um, It's his second 20-point game of the season, third one of his career. And Duke is now 7-0 in in Jeremy Roach's career when he hits three or more three-pointers in a game. He had three in this game. When Jeremy Roach hits three three three-pointers, Duke does not lose. I love the way the opening play of the game, the very first play that set the tone, was Jeremy Roach getting a smart, high percentage shot and converting it. it? You know, it just, it's the kind of thing a leader does. He makes sure that you're in an offensive flow and getting a good shot right from the get go. And throughout the game, that shot he got at the beginning where he sort of, you know, he was on the perimeter, he drove inside, he made some moves and he got a high percentage shot. That was his whole game. He kept getting in the lane and taking those pull up, those short pull up jumpers that he is so, so good at high arcing shot that is really difficult to block. The stat on him, to me, that's amazing. He plays 37 minutes in this game. His plus minus was plus 20. In the three minutes, he was not on the floor. So he played 37, not on for three, plus 20 when he's playing. Duke's minus eight in the three minutes he's not on the floor. You think he was the MVP of the game? Uh, Yeah, I think probably. I mean, talk about night and day. That is unbelievable from Jeremy Roach. Give me some Roach, and then let's talk about Mark Mitchell. His leadership was great as well. I mean, as the captain, there's a lot of times where, Jason, you were talking about some of the floaters that he did, some of the three-point, the high-arcing shots that he had. He also had some where he was able to find the opening 
to drive the lane and lay it in off the glass over the outstretched arms of Iowa's defense. And that's something that has markedly improved from last year and is also, you know, just one of those things where it's improved even a little bit since before then, right? Like the fact that he, you know, we used to, some of us used to, you know, hold our breath when he would drive the lane because we knew, oh no, something's about to happen and it might not be good. Now, the confidence that we see from him driving the lane and putting it off the glass, getting in ones, also distributing to teammates. He and, and Tyrese Proctor had a great relationship on the, on the wing. Sometimes, you know, Roach would bring the ball up. Sometimes he'd defer to Proctor. But just that communication that those two have really contributed to elevate both of their games, most especially Jeremy Roach. All right, so it's time to talk about Mark Mitchell. And I'm going to be the one to freely admit, I've been bagging on the guy a little bit lately. <laughs> I've been talking about, Just a hey, Mark. Just a yeah, I, I, you know, I've been saying, I, I need to see Mark do it, um, you know, in a game where it's competitive, uh, in a game against a higher quality opponent. And uh, Mark said, yo, Jason, watch this. I was tremendously impressed with his game last night. His uh, his ability to to get to the rim was just elite, absolutely elite. Have you looked at his shot chart? Yeah. Mark Mitchell's, Mark Mitchell's shot chart, it's it's this cluster of all these baskets right at the rim, right next to the basket. And it's worth noting, it wasn't like other guys were drawing the defense and he was going back door or something like that. And a lot of this was him putting the ball on the floor, the ball on the floor. and get, getting to the rim through his athleticism, through his strength, you know, through his physical gifts on his own and then finishing finishing really, really well. I thought Mark Mitchell was absolutely outstanding in this game. I, I said Jeremy Roach was the MVP. It it might have been Mark Mitchell because, again, we mentioned Mark Mitchell was matched against an All-American on defense most of the night. And he did very little switching, by the way. I noticed on Chris Murray, they were not going to let Chris Murray alone. They were not going to switch very much on him and let Chris Murray get one of these, you know, um, mismatches that would allow him to take advantage of his of his height and strength. I, I, I just, the, the confidence and the purpose that Mark Mitchell played with was something we have not seen yet from him. And it uh, I'm, I'm here to reverse course on where I was a few days ago. I I know Derek Whitehead needs to play more minutes. I'm now flummoxed and confused about where those minutes come from. Cause I don't know. They should come from Mark Mitchell. I mean, 17 points, five boards. And that's just not, that doesn't do it justice. Right. The fact again, cannot say enough about how he worked on the defensive end and exactly. honestly, Jason, if you work that hard on the defensive end, especially when you're going up against the All-American, a guy whose twin brother plays the same way and is currently playing for the Sacramento Kings, like you can get tired from that. And this guy did not. He got I mean, it felt like he had a second boost of energy every single time he got a stop on the defensive end. He translated it into points on the offensive end. So and and I know, like I said, he embraced that opportunity, embraced that job, that the task that he had. And yo, a plus effort on on everything that he did last night, especially on the defensive end. All right, Donald, I know you want to talk about a couple of the other guys, a couple of the bench players. Duke's been getting stellar bench play lately. Give me what you got on these gentlemen. Yeah, well, first off, I want to talk about Ryan Young. Um, Ryan Young, eleven boards off of the bench, and even though he didn't factor in that much on the offensive end, I felt like he did because there were some times he pulled down some offensive rebounds, but really on defense. He he got a few blocks, he altered some shots, and he also just was a menace inside. Whenever guys went inside, 
Ryan Young was able to have great, great footwork, great defense. Again, it's like he's it's like he's faced these teams before, Jason. I, I know we've talked about the number of Big Ten teams we've faced so far this season. I, I feel like he was ready for this particular defense and ready just to figure out how to control the inside alongside Derek Lively. And I think that is where uh, it's key because sometimes we had both of them in the game at the same time along with Filipowski, and it created a big lineup, but Ryan Young didn't waver from his goal uh, and from his task. The other one I'll say, Dariq Whitehead looks more and more comfortable every single game that he goes on. I think, the honestly, for, for us fans, the worst thing, that can happen right now is that we're going to have like three weeks where we only have two games basically. But for Derek Whitehead, this could be the best thing to happen to this team because he's oh, finally yeah. going to get that practice time in and he's finally going to get time to gel because again, he's learning on the fly. Once he gets some time to settle in and really focus on what he needs to do to, you know, on offense and on defense, man, he's going to be a menace. But like the fact that he came in again, when Mark Mitchell wasn't on the floor, Derek Whitehead was all in Chris Murray's grill and on offense, I felt like he had a, he had one three, which I'll talk about later. But he also had just a couple of moves where you're like, oh, yeah, this is the Derek Whitehead that everybody's been saying was coming. I feel like we're very close to getting the full Derek Whitehead. It, it, it's exciting to think about. All right. The last thing I have in the good, Donald, I want to talk about maturity for a moment, because there, there are a couple things about this game that really impressed me in terms of the way the Duke players handled a different or a difficult situation. The first one is with a minute and eight seconds left. You, you alluded to this earlier. Iowa was making a real run and they cut this lead. It was, you know, 18 point lead, something like that. 17, 19 point lead. They cut it down to eight. And I, I don't know about you. I was panicking a little bit. <laughs> I, I had you faith know, in my boys. I think. Uh, well, I'm glad you did. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not alone in being a Duke fan. Who's like, uh Oh, these freshmen, because it was mostly the freshmen out there, these freshmen mm -hmm. are, you know, are going to get flustered here. And John Shire called a timeout. And let's not forget, we've talked about this a lot. We got freshman players, we got a freshman coach also. <laughs> and calm the team down. They came out of that timeout. They promptly got Jeremy Roach the ball in a situation where he had to be fouled by Iowa. He buries the two free throws the way your junior leader is supposed to. Then they got to stop. And they raced the other way, and Mark Mitchell got a slam dunk, and suddenly eight was 12, and the game was over. That's a great moment of maturity against a really good team, kind of team you're going to be seeing in the NCAA tournament, where Duke had a solid lead, it went away, and Duke went, nah, we're not that worried about this, we're going to handle this. And the other maturity thing I wanted to mention was the pace. I'm not sure if you noticed it, but Iowa wants to play fast. They were, it wasn't like they were pressing Duke, but they had guys on our guards as soon as we inbounded the ball the entire game because they wanted to kind of speed us up in the backcourt and speed us up into the front court and get that game moving, get it churning along. That's the pace Iowa wants to play at. Duke hasn't played a game like that, that we haven't been facing teams that want to run, run, run all season. Well, it didn't bother us. We were able to, we able to, we kept things to nine turnovers, which is a very reasonable number against a team like Iowa. Despite the fact that they put pressure on us, we were still able to play our game on both ends of the floor. We didn't get sped up too much. We showed that we don't mind playing fast. When you have a team that's comfortable playing fast and comfortable playing slow, that's a, that's a sign of maturity and a sign that these guys have things under control. It doesn't feel like freshmen. It really doesn't, the, you know, the headiness and the calm with which these guys play. 
Jason, on that last few sequences of the game, you 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 even cut off like how great it was. It was even greater when you figure out what you cut off because right after Mark Mitchell gets that dunk, Iowa inbounds the ball and tries to do a length of the court pass. They throw it straight out of bounds. We come right back down. Kyle exactly. Filipowski dribbles the basically all the way down to the end of the shot clock, hits it off the rim, grabs his own rebound for his 10th rebound of the game, and then puts it back in. And that's just bang, bang, good night, go home. Like the the way they closed out the game was great. There's obviously some things that were shaky, right? We'll talk about that in the bad. But like the way they closed out the game, the, the headiness to be like, let's just calm down from the coaching staff down to the you know last man on the bench. Everyone was just like, hey, let's just calm down for a minute. Get this next, get this next bucket, get this next stop. Let's get up out of here. And they did that. So hats off to this team uh, for just again rising to the occasion, not being blinded by the lights of, of Madison Square Garden, and making it our house once again. So let's get to the bad, and I have a feeling this will not take very long. <laughs> uh, okay, let me do mine first. Uh, let's see. So Iowa did us some favors, I thought. By missing some open threes early in the game, like right off the bat. They then missed some some layups, some fairly easy shots late in the first half. Those are two of the things that allowed Duke to sort of take control of the game to at least to some extent uh, in the first half that we then exerted even more in the second half. So that's kind of, I guess, a little bit of a bad thing that we allowed Iowa to get a lot of shots that they probably should have made. You mentioned Lively doing a better job rebounding. He only had two rebounds in this game. I'm going to still say that Derek Lively needs to get better at rebounding. And there were, there were a couple times where you could tell he wasn't going to quite reach a rebound and and his body got in the way a little bit and, you know, picked up a foul or found himself in a bad position. He's got to work on that. That's got to get better. Um, we, we've mentioned, but it deserves to be, to me mentioned the bad that from like the four thirty mark down to about the one minute mark, Iowa went on a 10 to one run. You don't want teams going on 10 to one runs on you in the final five minutes of the game. I know Duke had a solid lead. I know we came back from that and we we stretched it out again and there were never any concerns, but still, uh, you know, I got, I got little Purdue flashbacks in my head of, of Duke failing to score like for the final seven minutes against Purdue as we were going through that little run. So that's another bad thing. And then the last bad thing I have is we only had 11 offensive rebounds. We did a really nice job on the boards, but only 11 offensive rebounds. Our offensive rebounding rate was just a shade under 30%. Um, not great, but not terrible. This is a team that's Duke has been coming close to or exceeding 40% offensive rebounding rates. So, I, you know, that's just one thing. I got to nitpick a little bit here. That's one thing where I feel like maybe we could have done a little bit of a better job. What you got for the bad? Yeah, I think those, uh, you know, the last, I guess, you know, two minutes of the game, I won't even, you, you cut down the last like under four timeout down, but I would say, the last two minutes where we kind of played a little sloppy and you obviously don't want to do that in late game situations. Uh, again, credit to our, to our team for kind of nipping it in the bud quickly and kind of, you know, focusing in on the last minute or so and getting out of there. I, I think for me, the ball movement wasn't as great as it was in games past. I think we only had 13 assists on 20 with 28 made baskets. So that ratio while still decently high is a little bit lower than we're used to seeing. And I want to see that continue to improve. Cause again, I think, you know, we had some open shots that we missed, uh, especially in the second half, we went a little cold uh, from beyond the arc in the second half. But I do think that a lot of the, 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 the game became stagnant at certain periods of the game 
where we could have passed the ball around, made an extra pass and probably got a better shot. So those are the ones. And also, I think, again, turnovers down the stretch uh, is always going to be key, taking care of the basketball. We were a little sloppy uh, when when Iowa made their run. We kind of handed them the ball on a couple of occasions. But we just, I think, on the whole, keep taking care of the basketball was something that we did well last night. It was just that final you know, few minutes where we kind of let it get away from us. Yeah, so let's get to our uh, – you don't have any other bad, right? I don't. know. that was it. Yeah, uh, like we said, it might have been Duke's best game of the season. <laughs> let's get to our favorite play. Donald, what's your nominee? What, what play did you like best? Yeah, so for me, it's probably an unconventional one, um, and I'll tell you why I, I enjoyed it. It was around the 11.48 mark of the first half. It's tied 11-11, and we got a three-pointer from uh, Jacob Grandison. Iowa comes down. They miss a shot very quickly. We come back down kind of on a fast break. I don't think they gave it to us as a fast break point, but it was it was a very high-tempo portion of the game. And Dariq Whitehead nails a three. I, I think the net barely moved to make it 17 to 11. Now, you may be thinking that's kind of an insignificant portion of the game, but we never trailed after that. Like Once it was 11-11, that was the last time that that game was tied. And those two... It kind of it kind of symbolized what the whole game was. Anytime Iowa got somewhat close, Duke was able to put on the motor and take it to eight, ten, even fifteen at times. So uh, I thought those two uh, those two threes, especially given the fact that we haven't shot threes very well, those two threes gave our team a lot of confidence that they could hit what they wanted to hit in this particular game. And I think that is why I consider it my favorite. So my favorite play was comes from the second half. It was one of the uh, the time that Ryan Young had one of his uh, flat-footed block shots, which he had a, <laughs> a, a number of in this game. Um, it's just a matter of him being a savvy player and sort of knowing the angles and all, the, all that other kind of stuff. So Ryan Young blocks, blocks the shot. Duke races the other way. Jeremy Roach has the ball, and he ends up you know, getting bumped in the lane and getting a three-point play. Um, really, really nice finish on his part through contact. And it was the moment that it gave Duke a 10-plus point lead. I know we later on, much later on, ended up giving up. You know, the lead went down to eight, so that 10-plus point lead went away. But that was the moment that sort of elevated us kind of to that next level where Iowa goes like, uh-oh, we're, we're in real trouble now. And I just thought it was a beautiful play, and it showcased the defense to offense that has been so much of a hallmark of what this team does best on the year. All right, Donald, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we look ahead to what Duke has coming up this weekend. Stay with us. All right, Donald, we got we to gotta take care of a, a little bit of a preview here. Duke has Maryland Eastern Shore as our opponent who is coming into Cameron this weekend. This is, this is kind of it for the, you know, for the really, you know, you know for the non-conference games that, that, that matter, um, you know, at least until we get to the NCAA tournament. After this, Duke will have nothing but ACC games left on the schedule. So Maryland Eastern Shore wraps up our non-conference schedule. And let's be very honest, they're, they're probably the worst team that Duke's going to face this year. This is this is not a good team. Tell me a little bit about who they have played and what they have done in their games thus far. They are three and six, not a good record, and they have not played anyone who matters. Well, they played Virginia, I guess. Yeah, well, Jason, you just mentioned that, that according to Kempom, you are right. This is the worst opponent on our schedule. 
according to ranking, 317th in Ken Palm. So um, much, 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 much uh, further down the list than some of the games that we have been playing recently. Uh, they do have three wins, one against Bryn Athen, which is a Division three school, one against Marist, and one against Lehigh. So not really good quality wins here. Uh, their losses are to Old Dominion, Charlotte, George Washington, UVA, Liberty, and George Mason. I think the one thing about Maryland Eastern Shore, and it's funny because I actually saw maybe like five or ten minutes of uh, their game against UVA. They are terrible at shooting. They are one of the worst shooting teams in, in college basketball. They shoot 43% from the floor as a team they shoot 32 percent from three they shoot 40 percent from two which might be even worse most teams want you to be like in the 50 to 55 percent range at the very minimum from two points if you're shooting if you're not shooting 40 percent from two like you're not going to kill anybody from three and you're not going to get a lot of uh shots from the free throw line yo uh, you mentioned 40 percent from two Th- there are 363 teams in division one basketball they are 306 uh, 356 again 356 out of 363 at their two-point field goal percentage that is terrible literally the seventh worst team in the country at two-point field goal percentage let me give you a couple of the other stats of the 363 teams they're 348th in offense they're 221st in defense when you're 221st in defense and that's your calling card, like that's your thing. That you're like, hey, look at us. We're 221 on defense. That shows how bad they are. They're just, this is, you know, they're a terrible team. And they're so, tiny. So I was going to say, this is this is the worst oh. stat. This is the yeah. worst stat. Go ahead. Yeah. So Ken Palm says they're the 358th smallest team in the, or biggest, I guess. You know, they're, I guess they're the fifth smallest, 358th, whatever it is. They are one of the smallest teams in the entire country. The biggest guy that they will have on the floor is Nathan Pollard. He is 6'5". <laughs> Duke's coming at you with like two seven-footers at all times. And like it, it is entirely possible that there will be moments where, where uh, our point guard will be Tyrese Proctor at 6'5". And then we'll have 6'8", Tariq Whitehead, and 6'8", Mark Mitchell on the wings. And then a couple seven-footers on the front line. Our point guard will be the same size, if not taller, than their center. It's just, you know, as you might imagine, on a team that's really small, they're among the bottom 100 teams in the country at both offensive rebounding and defensive rebounding. They are literally like the the fourth worst shot-blocking team in the country. I mean, they get some steals. About the only thing they do well is they get some steals. But that's about it. Like you said, they can't shoot. They when they've played decent teams, like when they play Virginia and they played other, you know, teams that are somewhat decent, they've been getting clobbered. Ken Pomeroy says final score from this game will be 80 to 53. He predicts a 27 point Blue Devil win. I will not be at all surprised if that's what happens. So the one thing about the height that I was going to mention, because yes, you're right they are the like fifth smallest team in college basketball. Meanwhile, we are the fifth tallest team in college basketball. We need to use that to our advantage because as you know, Jason, there are times where if you have a smaller team, your object is to make the game play small. You make it where you take the bigs out of the game. We have, again, like you said, we have a lineup that our point guard could be the tallest player on the, uh, on their team on the floor. 
And we need to play like that. We need to use that to our advantage. They love because they're so short, teams get a lot of assists on them. Their assist to field goal made ratio that they give up is 58.5%. That's really, really bad, which means obviously that plays into a strength that we have. We need to use that to our advantage. Pass because over you can, defense. Because you can see over them and you can see the floor. You can pass over yeah. the defense. Exactly. There's going to be, I mean, hey, if you have if you're on one side of the court and you can have a skip pass, you can do that. Why? Because you have seven footers in the corner. Jacob Grenison comes off the bench. He's six eight. You have, you know, Dariq Whitehead, he's six eight off the bench. Like you have guys that can come in that can pass over this defense. They need to use that, move the ball around, and again, use the size of their advantage and make it where they where the other team has to play big instead of us having to adapt to their smallness. Okay, so uh, there's not much more we need to say about this. Uh, you know, this will be an interesting game to see, you know, some of the guys who need some more development. Derek uh, Whitehead, I'm sure we're going to John Shire is going to tell Derek Whitehead, "Dude, I want you to flex yourself a little bit. This is a team against which you should try and push the envelope a little bit because this is where we need you to get to." But I also think it's a game where we're going to get to see some of the deeper bench guys. And before we go, it brings us to a question that we got from Jeffrey Lamb. Listener Jeffrey Lamb said, he sent us a, you know, a simple six word question. He said, why isn't shoot getting any run? It's a legit question that we're going to take a second and talk about because, you know, reasonably highly touted, you know, top 50 recruit considered to be one of the, if not the best shooter in the entire class, Jaden Shute just has not played for Duke in meaningful games so far this year. Donald, a comment on it, a thought on it? Why Why do you think he's not getting in games? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why, and I know you're going to talk about one, but the main thing is, is he isn't shooting the ball well. And for a guy who, again, his last name is Shute, as you mentioned, he, he was brought in here to be a shooter. He has not found the rim or he's not found the net yet uh a lot of, of these games that he's played even yeah, in the he, mop-up minutes he's he's one for six on three pointers and oh for two on two pointers so overall he's one for eight by the way even at the free throw line he's only two for four in free throws and this guy you know reputation is that he can really you know knock down some uh free throws but he hasn't even been able to do that yeah and that's a confidence issue right like we know he can shoot the ball we've seen it like it's not a question of oh i don't know if this guy has what we thought he had he does have it. He just needs to gain the confidence to do it. Will that come in this game? Maybe. Maybe we'll see him for extended minutes if it gets to be a blowout, as uh, the metrics predict. If is if it's also something that in practice that he needs to overcome, and we've seen this from guys in the past, right? Like we've seen guys who in practice you hear that they're killing it, they're making every single shot. They're Chef Curry in practice, and then they get to the game and they can't hit the broadside of a barn. It happens, and I think he just needs to overcome that. He needs to, you know. Just make it where he can find one of those shots go in to see it go in to gain that confidence. It's going to take some time, and uh, I'm not I'm not like low on him at all. I just want him to be able to find that confidence that he can get the shot because down the stretch, him shooting the ball well will add another element to this offense that will be helpful. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing if this practice time that we have in the next couple of weeks if that's going to help him or if we see him on Saturday, but. The reason why he's not playing for me among the myriad of issues is the one thing that he's on the floor to do on offense is shoot. And he hasn't been shooting the ball well. So I think there's uh twin reasons. There are two reasons that I, 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 I think you're probably right that he isn't filling it up the way we would expect. If, if he was coming in games, even at mop up time and knocking down a couple three pointers, 
that would the coaches would notice that and and i think he'd be fighting and, and perhaps getting a little more time as a result so there's no question that's part of it i think the the other thing is is defense um I, i've watched him a little bit on the floor I, I i don't this is a team that is built around defense i don't get the impression that Jaden shoot has quite picked up the defensive principles that this these guys need to have to to be able to to really work well with their teammates defense is such of a team thing if you have one weak link it can really really harm the the entire you know if you got four guys playing great defense and one guy playing bad defense you're going to be bad on defense um you know defense is sort of the lowest common denominator weakest link kind of thing and i think that he struggles a little bit at that end of the floor and then i think the other thing that's worth mentioning is duke's playing nine guys this is a very very deep team and i think he's just struggling to get time because there are other guys who are bringing better things to the table and there's just not really room I mean, we're already talking about the fact that, oh, as Whitehead needs more minutes, where is it going to come from? Where would Jaden Shoot be getting minutes? I, I don't know. And the the one thing I would say about it is, look, it, his minutes, his play, it, it seems like the same kind of thing. Jalen Blakes didn't play at all last year, hardly. You know, this is the same kind of thing, just getting mop-up minutes in, in blowouts. And we're seeing already that Jalen Blakes has turned into a very, very effective player for Duke as a sophomore. Who's, who's getting serious time. We've seen this play out again and again. If you give these guys a little bit of time, they can turn into really effective players, especially a guy who brings the kind of skills as a shooter that Jaden Shoot does. I don't know that this year we're ever going to see him be part of the regular rotation in competitive games, but I hope he will have patience and stick around because I think I've got no reason to believe that someone who's that good at putting the ball in the hoop isn't going to find room in the Duke rotation down the road. Offense will get you on the floor. Defense will keep you there. And I think that is really, like you said, I, I, I talked about the offense. You talked about the defense. Those are the two real issues. But honestly, I think for him, just like you said, Jason, you know, Jalen Blakes is a good example. You know, I think some people remember Grayson Allen. He, like he didn't play a lot you know, in the first part of his freshman year. It was only towards the end of the year that he started to get more minutes again as he uh, matured a little bit on defense uh, and then also brought that offensive element to the table. You know, this, yo, yo, this can go, happen. go look up, go look up Nolan Smith, Ryan mm-hmm. Kelly. Uh, I'm trying to think there, there have been plenty of them throughout Duke history. I, I want to say Daniel Ewing as well. Uh, there, there've been a lot of guys did not play hardly at all as freshmen and then come on later in their career and turn into, I mean, the case of Nolan Smith turned into damn near an all American, you know, ACC player of the year caliber kind of player. Ryan Kelly, uh, these guys got paychecks playing in the NBA. Um, Just because you don't play as a freshman doesn't mean your career is over. And shoot, this could be by design too, right, Jason? Like when we were talking about all these guys who were coming in, I mean, even last spring, we were like, hey, you know, unless shoot is shooting the ball, there may not be a lot of room for him in this offense yet. And I think that's the key word here, Jeff Lamb, my, my friend, yet. We haven't seen a lot of him yet. Let's see if we see that down the road. Uh, but right now, there's a couple of things he needs to work on. Well, with that, we're going to wrap up this episode number 466 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Donald Wine, thank you for being with me. Sam Klein, thanks for having a a job and earning an income. We're sorry you couldn't join us here, man. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> Get that yeah. money. Yeah, collect that money. Exactly. Sam said he was on a uh, conference call with his bosses. He's like, senior partners he was he said i I think i can't say i gotta run i gotta go do a duke podcast so we understand sam it's fine you'll make it up to us and to the audience over the weekend when we all talk about 
the latest goings on with Duke basketball and the latest game before the team takes a little bit of a break to take some exams and perhaps figure out Derek Whitehead. <laughs> That's going to do it for us. Again, he's Donald. I'm Jason. By the way, stick around at the end. After the Duke Band, we're going to talk a little bit about the movies. That's coming up. Duke Band, take us home. So I was going to wait and save this for Sam to get on, and we could kind of do it as a post-credit thing, but I'll do it now. Guess what movie I saw last night? Which one? Avatar. Avatar, Ooh. Wave of the Water. Yes. So How was it? Here is my assessment. It is incredible to look at. The three, like, the 3D stuff, I was taken back to how great the 3D was in Avatar. And I saw it on, you know, it's because it's a critic thing. They showed it to us on a IMAX screen. Not like a huge IMAX screen, but like, you know, IMAX. The so tall ones, yeah. Yeah, but not like the the monster ones. But it was pretty right. good, you know, good size screen. But, you know, IMAX projector, so super resolution. And they also showed it to us at 48 frames per second, which is, you know, twice. 24 is what you, 48. Like, that's a lot of frames. <laughs> <laughs> the resolution it was so photorealistic you were like you know it feels like you're right there it, it actually it kind of looks like a video game you know like when you yeah. a video game in your computer has, is even sharper to some extent than a than a that's movie. what the trailer feels like to me is like that sort of it, it felt like a yeah. video game trailer did you have to wear so, glasses oh oh yeah yeah okay but they're, they're easy they you know i i wear glasses they they went on top of my glasses they were fine so it, it's three hours and 15 minutes long and I was yeah. not bored. Yeah, wait, wait. I was not bored at all. So all those things sound like I'm about to tell you it's great, right? It's not. <laughs> it, it's like the plot is such nonsense. Makes no sense. I, I don't. I don't know what James Cameron was thinking. Like the the characters have. You know exactly what things. he was thinking. <laughs> he's think, you know what he's thinking. I'll tell you what he's thinking. He's thinking I'm making three of these or maybe four of these. And so I don't need to tell the full story right now. He didn't have a story in mind. Like literally this story, nothing interesting or revealing happens in the story. There isn't a single James Cameron movies are about characters going on a journey. Mm -hmm. Think about, think about like Terminator and, and like Terminator, uh, Terminator two, these movies, like Hamilton's character, even if you knew the story, even if you know the journey, Like there is one. It's the journey. Linda, her character changes. Think about Titanic and how much some of those characters change in terms of Kate Winslet's character, how much she changes. Think about the original Avatar. The original Avatar is literally about a guy changing from a human into a Navi. Well, this movie, no one changes. I mean, everyone. And it's surprising because some of the characters are, they have things about them that are like, oh, that's going to. That's going to evolve over the course of the movie. Oh, that attitude. We're going to see that change into something. No, no one changes. Three hours, nothing changes. It's Look, bizarre. Jason, the first, the first Avatar is still the most watched movie ever, right? Like something like that. Yeah. 
like a worldwide. I think, I think actually, it's still... I think Titanic is, but yeah, it's it's right. no, no, it's no, no, no. It's Avatar. Avatar is like more people watched Avatar really? than any other movie in the world in history. You mean in theaters? Because Titanic in theaters. rules in on theaters. cable. Yeah, yeah. I'm just yeah. talking about theaters. Okay. Yeah, but, yeah. Okay. And I and for a decade, right? It held this record or was close to it. I think uh, until um, uh, episode seven came through yeah, the and kind of busted it. Yeah, until yeah. it got the domestic record right but everyone was like avatar is the movie that everybody has seen that no one can tell you what it's about like all you know <laughs> is that avatar was like that like when you talk about avatar you talk about wow the 3d was amazing the whole world it just feels like you're part of it it's so realistic yada 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 and they're like okay what's well, the plot and you're like oh it was a good good movie i guess but you know it's, <laughs> and it's also everyone has only seen it once like no one like before Wave of Water, they're not saying, "Yo, go watch Avatar again just to refamiliarize yourself." No, right? Like people are just like, just just imagine what Avatar looked like, and we're gonna make it more realistic for you. And here you go. Like that's what it feels like. This is, and they're coming out. It's like every other year they're coming yeah. out with one. He's making like three of them like or Star four Wars. of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, look, the bottom line is, I think you're gonna want to see it because you're gonna want to know what's going on for the sequels. <laughs> right. And and because you really want to see the visual effects, this is this is what this is the height of what filmmakers can do, because James Cameron, given his track record, he, you know, he goes to a studio and he goes, I, I want to make the phone book. And they're like, great, here's a billion dollars. Do whatever you you know, mm -hmm. he, he is the man who who can do whatever he wants on film because his track record is literally unrivaled in cinematic what history. What I'm curious about is this, right? Because Avatar, the first one, he mentioned that it took him like 15 years to make it because he wanted the technology to be at a point where the movie right. was what it was supposed to be and the technology just wasn't there yet. Now that the te technology is there, it's also, again, it's taken him another, what, another 13 years to make part two. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that was him. That, 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 that wasn't a technology thing. That was a no. James Cameron being motivated thing. <laughs> right. That's well, that's my point is that the technology has been there and it still took him that long. And I'm wondering what like he has to try and figure out, because, again, they're thinking Avatar, most you know profitable movie theater movie ever. How do I get people if I get everyone who watched Avatar to watch this movie, it will make more because inflation. Right. 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 This movie has not come out with the flair and with the with the like trailers or just even the promotion to say, yo, this movie, if you watched Avatar, you are going to love this second movie. You should go see it because literally he's like, if he just said that he'd be appealing to half the grit eating world and he's not. And I think that is why I'm curious to see this movie. I don't even know if I'll see it in the theater. And I know that's probably sacrilege for this particular movie because yeah, you need the I 3d portion of it. But I also aren't like, I'm not, it, it, he hasn't given me anything to say like, yo, I got to go see this like Avatar was back in the day when everyone was like, yo, I, I don't know what I don't know if I'm going to like this movie, but I got to see it like that's not that's the feeling I don't get with this one.